This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Special episode, Writing to be Read. Today, we veer from our exploration of maritime history to charter a course of good writing. Professor John Curtis Perry is the Henry Willard Dennison, Professor Emeritus of History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, Tufts University. During 35 years teaching at Tufts University, Professor Perry offered a special lecture, Writing to be Read, to auditoriums packed with students and faculty who appreciated his approach to good writing. In this episode, Professor Perry describes his practical methodology for writing with the reader in mind, helps writers navigate the rocky shores of stilted or formulaic prose, and celebrates the joy of carefully crafting text. For about 30 years, I would give a talk at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy about writing. I aimed these words at students facing the challenge of writing papers, but the subject is relevant to all of us. I hasten to say that I'm not a master of writing. I'm a student of writing. I practice writing. Perhaps you do not think of yourself as a writer, but you are. I suspect that no matter whatever you do, a major part of your work may be writing. We all write emails from time to time. We all write letters. Why not make writing good? No one can teach you how to be a good writer, and I know that many of you who may be listening are already good writers. But for all of us, I believe we can teach ourselves to be better writers than we now are. This is my challenge to you. First, we can derive satisfaction of doing something with high competence. A well-tempered, nicely turned sentence can be a source of immense pleasure. Second, I would suggest that writing is an exercise in morality. The writer's aim ought to be the pursuit of clarity, and the pursuit of clarity is the pursuit of honesty and truth. You and I must fight for the purity and elegance of the language. Recapture it from those who are constantly debasing it. Writing is an instrument for moving ideas from one mind to another. The test of good writing is, did you convey exactly what you intended to convey? Your writing becomes consequential only as it is understood by others. The late Richard Marius, a teacher of fiction writing at Harvard, mourned, he said, Americans, modern people, have lost the capacity for solitude and for the enjoyment of solitary labor that is really necessary to write well. Is he right? Certainly, writing is lonely and antisocial. It requires an intensity of effort, necessarily excluding others. But on the positive side... Writing can offer escape, refuge, autonomy, an intellectual retreat from confusion and chaos. Many have found it such. 
Virginia Woolf in To the Lighthouse says, A truly great perception is like the wildness of animals. It must be hunted in silence with absolute concentration. Our own John Updike wrote that an idea is like ice on a hot stove. It must be captured quickly. Thus, it's useful to carry the electronic device of your choice, or even a small notebook or a bunch of file cards. Jot it down. I have found this useful. And if you take notes, use only one side of the page. File it away, read the file repeatedly, try to absorb the contents. And then, having collected some ideas, you sit down at your desk and begin to tap your computer keys. A common delusion of writers is to suppose that the reader will see what the writer himself does within his writing. Writing is like thinking. I believe that the ability to think clearly correlates closely to the ability to write clearly. Writing is a way of finding out what you are thinking. To my mind, these are tandem processes. E.M. Forster, in his passage to India, puts it neatly, how can I know what I think until I see what I've said? Learn by doing. The only way to learn how to write is to write, to write, to write. Where and when? A quiet place without distraction, where you can be self-absorbed, where time just falls away. Technique and style emerge from practice, similar to the other arts. Tennis, acting, cooking. You learn by doing. You must take up the racket on the court. Face an audience across the footlights. Go into the kitchen, sharpen your knives, and rattle the saucepans. Practice can be painful, frustrating, humiliating. Someone said it's like baseball. You may fail two-thirds of the time, but you feel exhilaration when the bat hits the ball. There's satisfaction when words cleave to the page, connecting the abstract to the material. Biographer Gene Fowler wrote, Writing is easy. All you do is sit staring at a blank piece of paper until the drops of blood form on your forehead. Or, in a more florid, 18th-century style, Dr. Samuel Johnson declared, Whoever desires for his writing the favor of mankind must add grace to strength and make his thoughts agreeable as well as useful. What is written with ease is never read with pleasure. Because good writing is so difficult, we are exposed to a lot of bad writing. But happily, modern technology makes multiple drafts much easier. It encourages even the smallest changes. In the late 19th century, long before word processors or even typewriters existed, a friend 
met Oscar Wilde one evening, and he asked Wilde, How was your day? Oscar said, Terrible. All morning, putting in a comma. All afternoon, taking it out. His comment nicely illustrates an infinite attention to detail, sedulous attention to minutiae, to precision. This makes for craftsmanship, and craftsmanship is a requisite for artistry. Art stands on the shoulders of craftsmanship. Fine writing is distillation. It's analogous to making fine whiskey, I suppose. Turning in sequence a ton of corn into a gallon of mash into a shot of bourbon. Your raw material is not corn, but thought. But like the distiller, you need time, discipline, and focus. Writing is a dynamic sequence of analysis, organization, synthesis of voluminous materials moving through your brain. You must not allow your reader to hear any rustling of notes, the shuffle of the mouse, or the clicking of the keyboard. Your reader must not be made aware of all the sweat and anxiety that lies behind your prose. The process must be inaudible, invisible, imperceptible. The writer's skill lies in making it look easy. Get a good ear. Read aloud. It hones sensitivity to cadence and rhythm. Read aloud to anyone who will listen to you. Abraham Lincoln did it, and his law partner complained privately. Grammar fascinated Lincoln because he delighted in precision. Grammatical accuracy is the precondition for being sure your sentences say exactly what you think they say. Read the best prose, those works you admire as much for their style as their content. Poetry conveys a valuable sense of rhythm and offers a model of compactness, an admirable density of weave. A fine poem is like a piece of sculpture, utterly without redundancy. Children's books are unpretentious and utterly lucid. Children have no patience for verbal fakery. The best writing offers models for all writers on any subject. First is erudition, a profound knowledge of the subject. Get the facts. Good writing is highly specific, and that requires facts, and that's hard work. Second, offer an intellectually elegant and arresting argument. Build an analytic structure. Have something to say about the facts. Third, serve up your argument in a pleasing way. Look to the structure and balance of your sentences, your choice of vocabulary. Say it as well as you can. And as you write, 
Avoid using the first phrase that springs into your mind. It is likely to be stale. As the great British grammarian Fowler decrees, never use a familiar metaphor or a well-worn phrase. The juice is gone. No flavor remains. Why, if you have a choice, take something already chewed? To be blunt, much of what you must read is dense, difficult to penetrate and absorb, therefore boring. My Harvard mentor, Professor Albion, delighted in telling us that a standard source at the time, the Cambridge History of the British Empire, was useful for its information, but, he said, written in chloroform on sheets of lead. Even novelists can falter. Mark Twain, on one of Henry James's novels, said, Once you put it down, you just can't pick it up. Much academic prose illustrates how a writer can bury his thoughts under layers of phrases and clauses and hide behind a passive verb. Bad writing can serve as armor against the reader who wants to know what the writer thinks. We need to bring scholarship out from behind the walls, the ramparts of abstruse language, within which many scholars have enclosed it. We face a growing gap between scholarly rhetoric and the language of daily life. This is an unhealthy phenomenon for American intellectual life, isolating much of the intellectual community, putting it on the margins of mainstream American culture. If you're writing in peace, assemble your facts and order them perhaps a simple sentence for each main idea. Your ideas provide the engine of your argument. Put them within a logical sequence. Bill Heinz, a sports writer known for his craftsmanship, likens the act of writing to masonry. It's like building a dry wall without mortar. You place the words in, one at a time, fit them, take them apart, and replace them until they're balanced and solid, and you don't use all your stones, some you may discard. Selection. Very important. Use only a fraction of your material. This always hurts. Choose only the most striking illustration. Novelist Ian McEwan says it's worth knowing about ten times as much as you use so that you can move freely. Go for the specific and concrete. Build an image the reader can see and that will lead him gracefully into your analysis. So stretch your imagination to construct good metaphors. Similes are trivial, but metaphors go to the heart of what people are. Aristotle says that constructing a good metaphor can improve the ability to see essential similarities, thus helping your thinking process. As you rewrite, 
be wary of excessive length. You may not be read. The competition is keen. You must persuade, seduce your reader. If your piece goes on for too long, you risk blurring your message, no matter how beautifully you may express it. You might be subject to the same comment Rossini made of Wagner. He gives us some beautiful moments, but some bad quarters of an hour. Cultivate pith, P-I-T-H, that lovely four-letter word. Pith gives sinuosity and tensile strength to your sentences. Simplicity should be your objective, the maximum effect with minimum means. Ambrose Bierce offers a model of pith and forthrightness in the world's shortest book review. The covers of this book are too far apart. So, good writing is an act of compression and a process of refinement. Admiral Horatio Lord Nelson on October 21st, 1805, the eve of Trafalgar, signaled to the fleet a beautifully terse message. England expects every man to do his duty. The humorist A.P. Herbert in World War II said that in contemporary parlance it would be England anticipates that as regards the current emergency, personnel will face up to the issues and exercise appropriately the functions allocated to their respective occupation groups. Verbal Styrofoam Scrape any verbal barnacles from your argument. Don't hesitate to take a surgical scalpel to any adipose tissue. Cut out the fat. Prune your sentences. Use lean language. Every piece is an ecosystem of words, structure, and rhythm. Put motion in every sentence. The whole life of the language lies in the solidity of the sentence. Seek out the active verb. The passive blurs causality. Mistakes were made. Okay, all right. Who made them? That's what you want to know. Sometimes language becomes euphemistic moving away from the possible embarrassment of the simple and direct. Torture becomes enhanced interrogation techniques. Potholes become pavement deficiencies. I am not an old man, but a senior citizen. We hear a lot of nouns used as verbs, impact, privilege, gift, a blurring between thing and action. We also hear redundancies, free gift, or words ending in I-Z-E, prioritize, finalize. They're fabricated, ugly, and tired. Beware of viruses in the spoken language creeping into writing. The pernicious of, it's not that Big of a deal. Of totally unnecessary. Feedback. 
It's legitimate in science. It's the response of some organism to its own behavior. But now it's a vague word used loosely for criticism, comment, evaluation. Why not simply response? Input is another word so overused as to be an eye-glazer. Language changes constantly. It's always in flux. This is good. This is a sign of vitality. But our duty is to push change in the right direction towards greater grace and precision. Imprecision can lead to embarrassment and misunderstanding. A sign in a Rome laundry. Ladies, leave your clothes here and spend the afternoon having a good time. We Americans sometimes have trouble expressing ourselves in our native tongue. A medical researcher friend shared with me a letter she received. I have been in bed with the doctor for two weeks, and he doesn't do me any good. If things don't improve, I will have to send for another doctor. Linguists today are of little help. They tend to be merely descriptive, mealy-mouthed. I believe they should be prescriptive also, as was the great Fowler. Rules can be helpful. At least they offer a code to which you may respond, to think about before you break them. Using the language well defines the kind of person you are. Bear in mind that there are some people out there who will think less of you if you use impact as a verb. You want to be read with pleasure. It's to your great advantage to be so. I suggest a musical model for all of us offered by pianist Alfred Brendel, incidentally a fine writer. He writes about music, not about writing. But the internal energy he expresses in both his music and his writing is palpable and infectious. Some of his sentences are so pure and polished that they almost ring like tapped crystal. Brendel offers a prescription for playing Liszt, applicable to what I am trying to say. Strive for a balance between originality and finish, generosity and control, dignity and fire, for at the highest, writing is a form of art. This may seem much too grand for us. Is it relevant to what we do? Yes, at the very least, we should care about writing as a fine craft. Craftsmanship can provide a consistent source of satisfaction with our work, whereas the substance of it may offer a much more fluctuating kind of rewards. We cannot necessarily be artists. We can all be fine craftsmen, and we can relish this accomplishment. So, let us seize this opportunity. If you enjoyed Professor John Curtis Perry's narrative style and insights in this special episode, and haven't yet experienced the rest of the Revolution at Sea podcast series, we invite you to join us 
in our exploration of the human history of the sea. This special lecture was created by John Curtis Perry, who delivered it to live audiences for decades, and, in 2021, has recorded it for this podcast in a condensed form. This episode was also made with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg, recording by Charlotte Allard, and production and distribution by Albert Buichadet Ferre. We make this recording freely available under the Creative Commons license Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. Anyone is free to copy, distribute, and reuse it. Attribution to the original work is required, along with an indication of any material changes made to it. Goodbye.